We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Joining us for this episode is Sanjeev Parmar, youth developer based in Canada. I'm sure there are a lot of coaches who are familiar with his work, either like myself from social media or just in the coaching community in general around the world. I was really keen to get him on to chat about his training methods, his coaching philosophy, and just youth development in general. So Really excited about this interview. Would love to know what you think. At Gary Kernin on Instagram, at Gary Kernin on Twitter. Please let me know. Before we start, I have to thank Wildcard for teaming up with us and sponsoring this podcast. Up until now, technology in youth sports has been used in a very, very limited way. A lot of apps only focus on operations and are slow, clunky, and not very mobile friendly at all. But Wildcard's all-in-one app empowers you to not only manage your team or club, but also create social engagement with your players around the game. Your team can stay connected beyond game time with blazingly fast features like chats, virtual challenges, game recaps, profiles. They've also launched club management, so you can easily manage hundreds of teams, delegate responsibility, and communicate with everyone in your club. A desktop version of club management comes out in mid-June where you can import thousands of your teams and events and your rosters with just one click and manage your entire club comfortably on your computer. Please check out Wildcard, sign up for the summer and fall season. If you get on board in June, you'll get the Wildcard for free plus you'll get grandfathered in. So please check it out, Wildcard. The information, the link is in the podcast information. Please check it out. We couldn't make the podcast happen without Wildcard, so much appreciated to them. Please, please go ahead and check them out. Okay, here is Sanjeev. Enjoy. Sanjeev, thanks so much for joining us today on the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. Really, really excited to have you on. Thank you for having me, Gary. It's amazing to be here. Wanted to, yeah, I wanted to get you on for a while. Obviously, um, people on social media are are well aware of your work, and and just uh, I think for myself personally, Twitter used to be an, an unbelievable place to get new ideas and a bit of innovation and creativity, and it's probably moved away from that. But you're someone who has always, in a really positive way, put out stuff that's different and creative, and I, I just think there's so much. There's so much room for that in the in the game at the minute. So I really appreciate uh, what you do and excited to chat about it. Yeah, I really appreciate those comments. What I want to start the conversation is basically an overview of the game. I mean, talking about Twitter and social media, it is a it's a place that a lot of people voice their frustrations about the game in in North America. We're not technically this. We're not technically that. And Canada, US seems to be pretty similar in, in, in what a lot of people say. 
where do you think that we are in the last couple of years? Where are we making progress on the technical side of the game, do you think? Yeah, I mean, if you actually look at the game over the last number of years in North America, it's improved a lot. It's uh, definitely, in you know, if you look back to the year 2000, over the last 20 years, huge improvements. Um, just from a technical perspective, I think maybe uh, social media helps a bit. You know, kids can watch uh, lots of games anytime. So I think that's helped a lot. I think Barcelona has really changed the way people view the game um, over the last 15 years. And and uh, probably across the continent, you start to see more people passing the ball, more coaches encouraging their kids to pass the ball um, almost to a fault. Um, so I think uh, passing has become better, but passing is, uh, I mean, what is passing? Is it short passing? What kind of distribution are we talking about here? So uh, when I'm talking about passing, I'm thinking maybe the five to 15 yard pass has gotten better. Um, maybe we can keep the ball a little bit longer without without real purpose um but i don't know if the game has improved so much that we can actually compete with um, the best teams in the world um our best players can yes um on the national teams maybe but in general it's improved in passing but uh passing also involves a lot of other things beforehand um which i don't think have improved um i think unopposed technical work yes has improved um, because of social media, kids can go onto Instagram. They can see a really cool video, and they can they can go and do that trick, um, which makes them feel like they're getting better. So they go do more. They go do more unopposed work. So they're getting a little bit more comfortable on the ball um, than the kids were 20 years ago. Um, they're a lot more creative on the ball in unopposed situations. That doesn't mean that the game has improved. Um, the things that haven't improved too much, I don't think. I think something that's really important that doesn't get worked on is movement off the ball. Um, movement in terms of, do I show for the ball? Do I pull away? Do I get in behind? And how do I do that? How do I do double movements, triple movements? How do I combine a certain movement to create space for another player? Um, these are very important parts of the game that at the highest level, yeah, they're happening. But I think... At the lower levels here, maybe we don't recognize that and, and you don't actually have to do it. Um, that's the other crazy part is you can coach proper things um, in your training session, but they don't necessarily happen in the game because the opposition is not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, from a receiving perspective, I think there needs to be tons of variety in receiving. Uh, as you know, 75% uh, of situations is receiving back to goal. So are we actually teaching kids on how to receive if you have a man on your left side versus if he's directly behind you, if there's two yards of space, if they're tight to you, what kind of turn is it, right? So there's so many different types of turns you can do on the first touch or on your second touch, or do you deceive the player by stepping in and then letting the ball go by you? There's so many ways of receiving, but are those being worked on? I don't know if they are. Um, I would say probably not based on what I see on the field usually with kids. Uh, and when you see someone that's got that little flair on their first touch, you're like, wow, that kid's amazing. Uh, and, and really, it shouldn't be like that because if you go to Europe, every kid has that ability to go around the corner, step to the ball, let it go past them, no touch turns, um, various ways of turning. So that, I think, um, needs to be worked on. So, you know, movement off the ball, which allows for you to then receive the ball. Um, then when you're on the ball, how do you outplay? Are you comfortable enough to actually use not only the defender in front of you, but the space and your teammates? 
because mm -hmm. a lot of uh, kids think that oh, playing is me against you. Um, that's the most simple form of the game, obviously, right? You take the eleven v eleven; it's a one v one. But in my in my opinion, the game should be created into a two v one. So how do you utilize space and the player beside you to beat this man? So if I look over to the right, obviously you as a defender think I might go to my right. If I open my hips to my right, I've opened my shoulders to the right. All of a sudden, I've just created space for myself to go to the left. But if you actually watch kids when they play one-on-one, -on -one, what do they do? They, they put their head down first. So if my head's down for the defender, they know now it's one-on-one -on -one time. But if my head is up, now they're thinking, is he going to pass the ball? Or is he going to take me on, right? And most likely they're thinking, oh, he's looking up. He's going to look to go somewhere else. But now it allows me to fake to pass to go on the dribble or fake the dribble to pass, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think the deception is a huge part of it. For me, for my core skills model, the ultimate part of the model is deception in every single thing you do. So whether you have the ball at your feet or whether you move before the ball or whether you receive on your first touch or whether you're looking to finish, how do you open your hips up to make it look like you're going to go far post and they cut it back at the last moment? How do you close your hips to look like you're going to drive that ball with your laces and then open up at the last moment? And for me, that's the excitement of the game. That's what I really enjoy watching kids do. And so I think um, when kids turn 10 to 11 years of age, those kinds of skills are starting to come out if you start to develop the foundation. And then I think um, now at this present moment, the world is starting to speak a little bit more about scanning. Um, and I think, you know, if you think about the last three, four years, scanning has become a, a, a something that, you know, high-level coaches start to talk about. And I think if, if, if you're really starting to talk about the future of the game, scanning is extremely important. Um, I, and I know, like, I've always coached scanning, but I've learned quite a bit about scanning now, um, especially about scan timing. Where do you scan? What do you scan for? Right. Um, these are things that probably were never discussed. They was just, hey, have a look over your shoulder, you know, and when you look over your shoulder, what do you actually see? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think the last part of the game, I think we're probably not there yet um, at the highest levels um, in Europe. Um, it's there. It, it's the cognitive development of the game. And I think that'll probably take a few years. But if people could get into that part of the game now, they're ahead of the game. So if they can start working on brain training and, and brain training starts at the youngest age, it's not when the kid becomes pro, we start developing their cognitive. It's when the kid is three, four, five, six years of age. And it doesn't have to be sports specific, but simple focus activities, simple activities where they can actually start to do two things at the same time. Right. And so I think that's where the game is going. And, and, and for me, that's, I'm no, I'm, I don't have that much knowledge on it. But I do try to incorporate whatever I think is is cognitive and whatever I think scanning could be to to be take part in my receiving and outplaying and finishing skills. Yes, yeah, it's, it's really interesting that like what what you're saying there is in some areas we're getting we're getting better. But then as you go deeper in the detail and mind for that there, then all of a sudden we open ourselves up to areas that we need to start meshing with the basics. So with that in mind, then it brings us along nicely to then you know the, the training techniques and something that always stands out. Like I said, something that you, your work makes makes me think, and sometimes goes against traditional methods and traditional thinking and traditional messaging, which I like because I think we need a bit more of that there. Well, let I wanted to, the first item or the first the topic would be you talk about gamification 
I'm going to show a, a quick video, which was one of your posts here. So if someone's listening to this in the podcast, I'll put this up on YouTube as well if you want to see it in the clips. Also, uh, obviously, it's on your Twitter as well. But this this gamification, this was a recent one that you posted. Um, and I thought this was really interesting with a player. Someone's throwing cones. I think someone throws <laughs> a shoe at me in a second. I know, it's amazing. It's either so, her brother or her father. <laughs> where's the, there's that. the shoe. That's the best part right there. <laughs> so talk to me about, you know, your uh, your design around gamification what are you trying to achieve here and and what's the you know talk me through the steps of of how you put that together well i mean if you gamification is a word that's come about in the last couple years obviously but gamification is everything that children do in today's society so if you start from kindergarten with little kids Every little game that they play online is gamification. There, there's always levels. So whether it's um, Raz Kids reading program, as soon as you read a book, you get 10 points. As soon as you answer questions, you get 50 points. And so there's always some sort of award system that's in play. So it's part of their life, whether they're learning languages with Duolingo, uh, whether it's Zorbit's math for kindergarten kids. It, it, like You start from the first day uh, when the kid gets on their iPhone, there's gamification. So from a coaching perspective, if we do not gamify our sport, then it's completely different from the world that they actually live in. And so we need to actually be in that world. Um, so that world maybe didn't exist 10 years ago and before for sure not. But now uh, we need to figure out how can we get to the kids level? So for example, you probably remember as a kid growing up, the, the best game that you would probably ever play is you five or six of you guys after training or before training you play world cup one guy goes yeah. in goal okay if you shoot you score argentina yeah that's my goal i'm out right so if you actually think about that that's the simplest form of gamification because there's actually layers of levels that they're going through right so they go from round one to round two to semifinals to the final right and so they're actually doing that we've actually been doing that forever and ever but those kind of games, which actually kids love, we take away from them and then we give them a drill. That's, that's just meaningless, right? Um, if, you, you know, if you brought a dice to a, game, uh, to a training session and you, and you came up with a small-sided game and you said, okay, if you roll the die and you get one, it means this. If you roll two, that means you can only use your left foot. If you roll three, you're only allowed to have, you can play with uh, one extra man. Right. Like you just come up with different levels and all of a sudden it's gamified and the kids are excited. You start adding in timeouts. Right. So you say, OK, the game we're going to play is four minutes long. At any point in that game, you can have a timeout. You call the timeout. Everyone gets together. You've got 20 seconds to come up with your own plan. So all of a sudden, kids are now empowered to not only control the game, to, to call the timeout, but to also control the game by coaching each other and say, hey, we got to figure this out. We're losing here. How can we figure this out? Right. So I think it's um, it, it's the most important part of uh, coaching at this present moment that we need to be aware of, because if we're not, you're just going to lose kids. Um, recent studies have actually shown that um, in the next generation. So our kids, their ki um, their kids will probably not play sports anymore. They'll probably put them into EA sports types games. So instead of, you know, your parents and I, we put our kids into sports, we take them to soccer, we take them to whatever, hockey, whatever it is. They will be actually putting them into video games, 
because that's what they did. This generation plays video games. So why would they go to the field when they never played as kids? Right. So we have to gamify. It's an emergency state. I feel like for us as coaches to figure that out and to, and to provide that excitement of where you have multiple lives. And, and if you fail, that's okay. Let's do it again. And, but the, the key is not let them fail and just regard it as, Oh yeah, you're the greatest in the world because then you're not producing any players anyways. Right. You're not helping them get any better, but every time they're failing, it's okay. Let's try it again. Hey, what do you think you could have done better here? Let's okay, let's try it that way. Right. And so you're giving them some suggestions. Maybe they're giving you suggestions because that's the generation we live in. They want to tell you, right? They want to tell you what they feel. So let them tell you. And then okay, you try it the way you said you're telling me. Let's talk about decision making. Because I, you know, it's and I don't want to go down the road of opposed, unopposed, and isolate, because you know, I think it's all got value at, at certain amounts it's just when and where and what stages so decision making is something that we again we talk a lot about as coaches and you've, you've got a couple of points there about awareness and scanning and how do we how do we drop that in and still control how do we balance that as coaches to design the session and still get what we need out of it but still facilitate that decision making component just, I mean, there's obviously there's huge arguments over decision making, right? You can uh, you can go both ways, unopposed versus opposed, like you said. Um, decision making is obviously the game, right? Um, so if we as coaches start designing things, like I look at the four R's. So for me, four R's are important: uh, receiving the ball, re- uh, receiving the ball, running with the ball, retaining the ball, and releasing the ball. Right. So if I'm giving a kid something to do at home, I think that you could still design decision making stuff for them to do by even if their parents, let's say they they put up two uh, T-shirts, red and yellow. Right. And then you throw on throw down uh, two T-shirts on the ground that are red to the left and right. And then two on the uh, ground that are yellow, maybe in the front and in the back. It could be a shoe because you don't have two T-shirts that are yellow. So now the kid might play it against the wall, the house. You know, like I used to do, I kicked the ball against the home. And then as they're receiving the ball, the parent is putting it up, but the parent is behind them. So all of a sudden the kid's scanning, right? So in order to scan, they have to look, which is uh, particular to the game. So once they've looked, now they have to make a decision, which cone went up or which color went up. Was it red or yellow? Red means I can go this way or I can go that way, left or right. Now, which way am I going to go? Is this one closer or that one closer? So they actually have to make a decision, right? So they gather the information, they make a decision, and then they have to execute it Why? by doing a certain type of move, right? Is it take it with me outside foot? Do I take it with my inside foot? Do I control my soul? Because I looked over my shoulder and I didn't have enough time. So all of a sudden, the decisions are all coming into play. But it's a matter of how you design that. And, and so, I mean, I'm lucky. I, we use blaze pods. Or we'll use cones. I just come up with different things. So, you know, recently we bought blaze pods last year. And so colors start flashing, right? And then you can start putting cones out or gates. And so, you know, I'll play a little 1v1 game, for example. Kids are playing 1v1, but I'll set the blaze pods where the colors change every four, between, let's say, three to eight seconds. You can do whatever you want. So when they're playing one-on-one, ball rolls out, they see the color go off, red. Red means, okay, there's four corners, four uh, corner flags for the field. So there's a red cone, there's a blue cone, yellow cone, and a green cone. If the red goes off, you score on the goal that's close to the red. But as they're dribbling, it might go off at any moment. It could be between three to eight seconds. They don't know that. So as they're dribbling, the color goes off. They can't score there anymore. They have to now look for the next color. So 
they're constantly looking up and deciding based on what happens, right? So um, some people say that's not appropriate, you know, it's not proper decision making, but the reality is that we don't always have a 3v3 game or a 4v4 game that we can apply because kids are going to go train on their own. For example, this last two months, we've been at, at home doing COVID training, online training. So how do I incorporate decision-making into that, right? So I get the parents to come out and I tell them to put up cones and that's how we do it. So, um, I mean, different situations in training, it's, it's easy, right? Decision-making, you can do it easily. But when you're at home, a little bit different, obviously, but you just got to get really creative with it. Yeah, that's your your Jogo Benito Outplay program. So was that that was designed around COVID? Was that incorporating certain skills? I mean, how did you structure that? How did you design it? Yeah, yeah, it's a, the whole purpose of the Jogo. We we created this tournament, Jogo Benito uh, Outplay Futuro, and so basically it ran from May first, and it's actually coming to an end today, May thirty first. And uh, the way I designed it was knowing that the kids are going to be home for this month. They're not allowed to train. They're not allowed to go play with their friends. Um, they're probably not going to go outside and do footwork with a ball, right? When I tell them to do it, they're not going to go do it because it's not fun, right? Like who really wants to go out there and do uh, 100 Vs and, and, two, and 10 step overs, this and that? Like it's really, it's boring. So what I did is I said, I, I met with them all. I designed the tournament based, actually it was on, based on last year because we did it last year. So we did a Zoom meeting and I said to him, we're going to have this tournament and there was rules put in place. You have to submit your video by 12 o'clock on a certain day. They were provided their schedule in, in late April. So they had a 30-day schedule of 12 to 15 matches. So every other day they're basically playing and they were going to play amongst their own age group, so against their own teammates. So there were certain criteria put in place. So you have to have variety of skills. You have to have coordination of both feet. Are you are deceptive within your move? Are you um, doing it with speed? Is there flow from one to the next? And is there complexity of the movement, right? So those were the things that we looked at. So last year, the way we did it was we would put it on Instagram and then it was a vote. So then you'd go get hundreds of your friends and your family to vote. And so it wasn't really the best one that won. It was the most favorite, you know, it was the, yeah. that was cool, I thought. But then I was like, well, the best players sometimes don't win. So this year what I did is, I wanted to do it, so I I got engaged the whole academy. So from 2008 and younger, the kids participated. So that was under 13 and younger. Under 14 and older, they were our judges. So I created a huge spreadsheet. So all those kids, then I, I got on a WhatsApp group, and I would send them, uh, the games are done for the day, guys, go on and vote. And then they would speak back and forth. You know, they'd WhatsApp each other and say, oh, I like that guy. He's really doing well. I think that one's going to be doing well. And so they'd go back and forth. So all of a sudden, it's a big community now involved. So all the kids know that the older kids are actually voting for them. All the older kids in the academy actually know all the younger kids in the academy now because they watch the video, they go through it, they judge, and then they give a little point. End of the day, um, I, I actually in the morning, I wake up, I accumulate all the score. It's already accumulated. And then I just put it down. I send it on Instagram. Here's the winners for the day. And the kids love it. And so when I get online with them, uh, you know, every couple of days, I go through the results. Hey, so-and-so is on top of the standings. They got this many points. And, you know, and the last couple of days have been real hype because I've been putting little videos together where it's, uh, in our 2008, for example, we got two girls that are in the final playing against each other and the final matches today. So they're submitting their videos to me today. They'll, it'll go up tonight. And uh, I put like a little trophy there. 
It was the, I think it was the European Champions League Women's Trophy. And then I just right. put Yoga Benito on there. And so it's just total hype. It's been great. And, and, and what we're going to actually do now is I've actually got a couple of other clubs that are involved from other parts of Canada. I've got a couple of clubs in America that are interested. And, and we're going to do a little Champions League series. So they're doing their little tournament. And then we're going to do a little outplaying tournament online. We haven't figured out uh, how we're going to do that, but it's coming now. Just take a quick break here for one minute. Coaches, really appreciate you listening to the podcast. The vast majority of stuff we do with Modern Soccer Coach is free, trying to engage the community as much content as possible. We're putting as much webinars and video content up on the website, modernsoccercoach.com. Please go ahead, check that out. If you want to support what we're doing, three ways you can do it. One, you can go in the Modern Soccer Coach shop and support the work there, books, webinars, all good stuff in there. Number two, you can give us shout outs on social media, help spread the word, help get coaches involved. And then the third one is help support the sponsors. So sponsor for this one is Wildcard. We've teamed up with Wildcard before. Fantastic platform to help coaches. Wildcard's all-in-one app empowers you to manage your team, your club, plus create social engagement directly with your players. Your team can stay connected beyond game time with features like chats, virtual challenges, game recaps and profiles. Wildcard have given us an unbelievable deal. Please check it out. The information is on the podcast information. We'll have it up on the website as well. Again, thanks for supporting Modern Soccer Coach. Thanks for all your help. Back to Sanjeev. Staying on the training methods and, and exercises and design another one i'm going to pull a video up here is uh is this is more of a of a group training which is the the scoop and twist one that that jumped out of me and again uh, i'll just play it here we can chat on it great the, the tires sanji the tires uh putting them in different places yeah for sure i mean this is this is hilarious i i contacted my uh my buddy he's a mechanic and i said hey do you have some tires because yeah. how many you need i said i need uh different sizes i need big ones i need small ones just bring them and uh, he brought me eight tires to the trading session. He threw them in. Uh, he had to rent someone's van. And then uh, after the, after his work, he brought it over to the training session. I said, just make sure you get them there. And so I designed some ideas. I was like, okay, I'm going to do some finishing. I'll do some dribbling. I'll do some passing. And, and so came up with all these ideas. And scooping for me, you know, that, that's an important part of the game that probably not many people work on. But if you watch the top players, you know, they, they can they can figure out um, situations at the last moment. A scoop is something that, that happens all the time. So, you know, I, I did a little scoop in there. You have to play it through the tire. So a little bit of accuracy there. Uh, basically, they were kind of like mannequins, right? Or they were like a cone or a pull. But they were a little bit bigger. We even did um, something in that session where the kid would roll the tire at you. And you'd have to dribble at it. So while you're dribbling, they'd roll it. And then you'd have to avoid it and then shoot. So you might be off balance. You just don't know where that ball is going to go. Or they might roll it and it, or it might roll this, you know, twist it so that it kind of like, it's not rolling, but you know, it's uh, turning and twisting. So now you really got to avoid it. You might scoop it over, jump around it. It was wild. The kids loved it. And it, it just brings uh, 
some sort of um, excitement to training. So it's, it's exactly the same thing I'm always doing. It's still the same finishing, same concepts. You know, we're working on finishing, closing your hips, opening your hips, looking up, scanning, timing now of going at a player, but now it's a tire instead, <laughs> you know? And, and uh, I made it into little competitions. There's two teams going simultaneously. It, it was just a lot of fun, you know, and the environment was great that day. Well, we go, like, I find this fascinating because again, going back to social media and going back to people that are sharing this. I always think people uh, do the layup these days. You know, I want to share. It's a 4v2 rondo um, mm-hmm. and it progresses into an 8v4 and then all of a sudden we'll play it. And like, uh, like if you're a player, yeah, you can get tactical points across and, and different concepts across and principles. But if you're a player at seven, eight years of age and you're being exposed to that session design, surely you're going to be disengaged with training by the time you're 12. You know, I look at your stuff and like, all right, you know, quick goal aren't selling tires. Thankfully, <laughs> they'd be a fortune. But if I'm a player and I'm a parent and I'm dropping my son off or my daughter off there and thinking, yeah, like, get you, you engaged a little bit more, doesn't it? Absolutely. For me, you know, coaching changed quite a bit when, when I had little kids. Because when you have kids, that's when you start to realize they are not. So I would look at coaching as, okay, I'm going to produce players, right? Mm-hmm. And so you were producing players, you're making them more skillful. And then when you have kids, then you start to realize that they want to do certain things that relate to play, right? And play is the main word. They just want to play. So if I can make everything playful, whether it's a warm-up game, it's a tag game, it's play, right? Whether it's strength exercises, it's play right? Everything is play and, and it's just excitement. All of a sudden you're developing the passion for the kids. So for me, that's, that, that was something I learned, um, you know, as my little kids started to grow up, it was, they just want to play. So I'd go in the basement, I'd play one-on-one with them. I was, I was never going to go in the basement and show them scissors, but you know what I did? I started to realize very quickly that role modeling was a huge thing in my children's lives. So what I would do is when I play one-on-one, I would beat them. All the time. I still want to try to beat him, but I, I struggle to beat him now. But what happened is I would beat him as a two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old. I let him win a little bit, but I beat him all the time so that they understand that winning and losing is important and that you have to earn the win and not just, oh, I'm a winner. I get a trophy, you know, because I because com- I competed. So what I would do is I would role model skills. I would, and what I would do is I would do a scissors. I'm like, oh, did you see that scissors? And I go crazy, right? Like I would do a Maradona. Oh, Diego Maradona with that move. You know, you're just, you're just getting all excited. And so the kid's like, oh, that must be something important because there's excitement in that move. And then I'd score. I do the crazy celebration, somersaults, cartwheels, you know, whatever some uh, celebrations you can imagine. So all of a sudden now for the child growing up, they're like, Okay, this is the move that my dad used to beat me with. This is the move. I'm going to do it to them now. And so what I would do is I would ask him, where did you learn that move? And he'd be like, in my mind. But I know that my kid loved to role model. He was role modeling all the time, right? So he would always come back to me, in my mind. That was like the classic saying. So then I start to realize like, okay, me as a role model, I can show everything. And, and if I'm playing with these kids, I'm doing things. I don't need to do scissors with them unopposed. I could do them in games and they're like, Oh my God, did you see that move? And then automatically they go and practice it on their own on their, you know, when they're playing. And then when they do it, I'm always encouraging them. Hey, that was great. Great try. And so when they hear the coach say great try, then all of a sudden that's, that's what's expected. 
I can go into games where we'll play a game at U9 and we get blown out, like blown out. People are like, what a joke team. But my kids would be like, oh, I got my three Maradonas today and I did my two scissors and I made that one uh, bending, pa- whatever it was, right? Like, so all of a sudden we're like, we got victories today on whatever we were trying to accomplish because it's all about the individual and not about the team. Because end of the day, when my kid gets to 18 years of age, did I help them go on to play at university, professional or international? That's my only ambition, right? And did I keep them in the game forever and ever and ever? And if, if I can develop passion at the beginning, then that passion will remain because then I'm teaching them to be persistent, right? Like they're trying things and they start to realize that it's okay to fail. Trial and error is coming along, right? And so just the basic ideas of education, you know, where you allow kids to try, allow them to fail, observe it, correct it, and give them more rehearsal. And that's just, that's the way it's got to be. But I think a lot of people study that, but when it comes down to the game, it's, it's really important to win that game. And then everything's out the window. Right. And for me, the game doesn't mean anything. I tell parents when they come to us, I said, if you're here to win, you're in the wrong place. You need to go to the other clubs because we're not here to win. We're here to produce players. If your child is here to become a better human being, we, you know, we talk about our seven pillars. So if, if you're here for these reasons, great. If you're not, then, you know, you can go somewhere else where you can go win a game and it might mean something for you now, but three years down the road, four years down the road, you're not playing soccer. Yeah, I, I obviously I had to work at, at the young ages. But when I but I'm fascinated because I look at it from a when you reverse engineer it and go down, passion for me, passion is the driver. And mm. I watched the Alex Ferguson documentary last night, and the two of my biggest takeaways were the Cantona joined him because he was lost in football, he had lost the passion. But then Ferguson always talks about this this feeling. This and, and is driving everything, and I almost can think that what would I want from my, my kids are probably about one year away from going into environments, and I'm not thrilled about sending them into. I don't care about a tactical structure. But I do care that they care enough about. Like it would thrill me to bits to see my little kid out practicing. So it would thrill me to bits to watch a game with my son, 10, 15 years of age, and him to be enthusiastic about the game. Because the more I see at older age groups, that sometimes the it's not that the fire burns out; it's that the fire was never really lit to begin with. They're hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. If you think about, like, I guess you got little kids, right? So they're going into the stage of starting to play the game, right? I think you're saying. So yeah. if you look at these little kids, I tell parents all the time in our meetings. I said, "Do you understand the idea of parallel play?" They look at me like, what is parallel play? Never heard that word before. And, and, and so in, in our country and your country, same thing. When a kid turns one years old or two year old, they're told sharing is caring. Right. But what parents don't realize is sharing is not caring at all for little kids because they don't understand the concept of sharing because I'm playing with you. We're playing together, but I'm playing with my toy. You play with your toy, but we're playing together. They don't share. Right. But the idea of sharing is caring becomes like this huge thing that parents force upon children. And so that happens on the soccer field. We go into under eights, under seven, under nines. And all of a sudden you got to pass the ball and you hear parents either say pass the ball or kick the ball or he's such a hog. Mm -hmm. And that word he's such a hog means that that parent is completely uneducated about how a child is supposed to develop. 
which is normal. But if you have a child, then you should understand children a little bit at what stages they're at. And so the children that are at seven, eight, nine, 10, they're going through parallel play, which is me and the ball. So if that is true, then why aren't we giving kids the ball? And why are we playing 7v7? And why are we playing 9v9? Right. So if a child wants the ball, then allow them to play 1v1, 2v2, 3v3, 4v4, smaller games, right? Like in Belgium, they have a program in place where it's 2v2, right, from five and six years of age. Why do they do that? Because kids want the ball and they get the ball, right? And so I don't tell kids to pass the ball. When you come, when you come to me, they dribble. They get the ball and they dribble. And one thing that I read a number of years ago, which stuck with me, was it, it, it was a biography on um, Lionel Messi. He talked about in Argentina, when you play street soccer, when someone gets the ball, you allow them to do their thing because they're going to get it and they're going to have excitement with the ball. And then when you get the ball, it's your turn to have excitement with the ball. And that is the game for them. So if you look at the Ar Argentinians or Brazilians, that's the way they play. They're creative on the ball because they were allowed to do that when they were young. If you look at North America, we're a conservative culture. We share, we pass the ball, we give it to you. We don't want to take too much credit. We're in North America. It's completely different than South America, right? So the creative flair comes out in those South Americans where here there is none because we take it away from our kids, right? The genius that our five-year-olds are, we take it away by the time they're nine, they've lost all that genius, right? If you actually want to do a simple, simple study, take your little five, six-year-old kids, Give them a ball and tell them your objective is there's the goal to score the goal. You pass them the ball. They will always try to get the ball to that goal first. They will miss the ball almost all the time. But when you pass it to them, they will naturally try to get the ball and go to goal. If you actually think of that concept, that is like the most important concept in soccer. Get your body turned forward, break lines. This is all the stuff we talk about, right? On Twitter, that's what you talk about, right? Breaking lines and receiving and opening up and going to goal. Well, the five and six and seven-year-old kid, they will naturally do that because they realize that is the only purpose is to score goals, right? They have no other purpose, not to pass the ball and get it back on a combination, right? So what happens though is we actually take that away from them. You know how we do that? As coaches, we scare them. When they get the ball, kick it away, kick it away. They're going to steal the ball and score on you. So all of a sudden you start fumbling that ball. So instead of turning and going forward, you actually try to start to protect the ball. So now we start to teach them how to protect and then escape, right? Rather than receive and go forward to goal. So we, you talk about reverse engineering. So we kill children at a very young age from the creativity that they have. And then we're like, we need to create these creative children. So at 9, 10, 11, we're trying to give them some creativity, which we actually took away from five, six, seven, eight years of age. Right. And then when the kids get to 12, 13 years of age, we start talking about decision making because it's OK to dribble at 9, 10, 11. But now you better not give away the ball, because if you do, we lose games. We, we don't win the state championship. But we also or do we also then in, in our culture over here, because we you know, you mentioned about Barcelona. Well, everyone wants to play a possession. You know, all, all game models, I'm convinced all game models are all the same. The theory-based game models are the same. Everyone wants to possess like Barca. Everyone wants to high press. But those are two systems that are very, very, on surface level, very collective. So everyone, like Rondo activities, pass, 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 pass. But in reality, when you go onto the surface of what makes those things so 
on overload, underloads, whatever you want to talk, you need dribblers, you need people who are creative, you need problem solvers, which sometimes conflicts with philosophies or training methods of, well, we're all going to do this. So sometimes it's difficult, even at older levels, if that creativity is not nurtured or I don't know if it's, if it's not ingrained or if it's permission to make, to make mistakes or to be different. And, and I wonder if, that's, if that holds us back in North America from that less, you know, to be a number nine, you talk about Defoe and Aguero, they're so selfish, but that's fine. But they're the, they're the ones we all, we all miss on a Saturday when we can't take chances, aren't they? Absolutely. When we watch the game, the funny thing is every coach that watches the game loves the game. They watch it on the weekend and they get excited about the exciting players. Right. They don't get excited about one team sitting back and then defending. You know, they talk about it, but that's not exciting. Right. So if that's the excitement of the game, why are we not producing those players to excite us? Right. And the easiest thing to do is create them at eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years of age, because you're molding that kid into whatever you want. They're basically a tabula rasa. They come to you blank slate. And what are you going to do with them? So if they have not become anything by 13, 14, you actually failed them as a coach, right? So you take the idea, even the idea of Barcelona. Every one of those players is world-class on the ball. That's the only reason they can play positional play. They can keep that ball, possession. They, They understand where to move. They understand angles. Angles, I always refer back to the kids as math. I say, if you want to play for Barcelona, you better be a great mathematician. If you want to be the next Lionel Messi, think about every pass he makes. Think about the weight of that pass. Think of the angle of the pass. Think of what kind of bend he hits. That's all math, right? And the kid's like, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, so the kids get all excited. So I always refer back to math for the kids so that I can relate school back to, you know, back to soccer as well. But I think it's really important that coaches understand if you want to have a team that can keep the ball, then, then, like I said, you better move off the ball. You better receive the ball back really well. Right? You better be able to drive a ball 25, 30 yards with your laces under the, under the knees. Yeah, you, you also have a focus as well, just in, in doing some research for this and looking, looking at the program. There's a, there's a focus on the physical side, which you don't normally, because it seems that your program is really, there's a big technical, uh, technical onus but you also place a focus on the physical side. You've got a high-performance program. Mm-hmm. So at the youth levels, where do you think this process begins? How much physical work do you feel young players should be doing? How is it tiered into team training? What's your philosophy, thoughts on that? See, I think um, when people refer to physical, it was kind of like back, back you know, when we were younger, uh, strength training was referred to being muscular like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. Um, I think now when people talk about physical, maybe they're referring to aerobic. Um, they're talking about sprinting. Um, for me, physical is the first component that needs to be put into place from the from the earliest days of a child's um, life, basically. Right. They start to walk. They start to crawl. Right. They start to run. If you don't teach them to jog and run, then how can they play the game? So from the youngest age, so my program at the youngest age, like four, five, six, seven, we call it physical literacy program. And, and physical literacy being, can you, can you jump? Can you crawl? Can you move backwards, forwards? Can you leap, throw, gallop, skip? You know, all the different movements that come into place, crossover one way, and body strength exercises. So those are all very important because if you cannot move, if you're not a mover, 
you're not going to be a good 1v1 person, right? If you cannot move, you cannot twist one way to go the other way. If you cannot coordinate hopping on one leg, then how can you do a fake one way and then push the other way? So physical literacy for me is the most important at the beginning ages, along with mentality. So mentality and physical, because a lot of people talk about mentality being, oh, you know, we don't want kids to be competitive. For me, the kid needs to be competitive from day one. And you as a parent at home, if you don't produce a competitive child, no one else is going to produce them for you. Because at home, if I'm not telling my kid that they can do better, and if everything is accepted, then you're not producing mentality, right? So for me, I'm always making everything a competition. And then the competition now becomes physical a lot of the times for kids, right? So when we come into a training session, every single training session always has a warm-up game. And the warm-up game is some sort of tag game. It's not cones put down and you're moving through those properly. Sometimes, yeah, it might be because you actually have to teach a certain type of movement. But generally, kids will learn all their movements by escaping, right? So you come to me, I'm going to fake one way, go the other. There's your lunge to the left. There's your lunge to the right. Then you drop your shoulder this way. You get down and up. Um, you know, even my uh, strength training stuff that we try to throw in, it's gamified, right? You can do wheelbarrow races. Right? You, you put the kid into on the ground and you do a wheelbarrow race, all of a sudden they're working their upper body. Bear walks, animal walks, different types of animal walks. So now all of a sudden you can get your six, seven, eight, ten year old scream like a bear, right? So they're howling like a bear, but really they're working their shoulders, they're working their legs, right? So the older ages, it's important, obviously, because as you start to now get to the 12, 13, 14, 15, you start to now teach them how to treat their bodies because all of a sudden they've grown all of a sudden their hamstrings are tight. So how do you work out to make your hamstrings strong enough so that you don't get an ACL injury, right? So for the female side, especially we, we talk about that all the time. I I'm always talking to the girls about hamstrings and what are hamstrings important for, you know, we talk about the ACL. So um, I think it's really important that from a young age, physical is part of it. And then at those 11, 12, 13 you're starting to now educate them on how to do proper techniques of strength training. And then as they get a little bit older, start to introduce a little bit more weight so that they can now become stronger, obviously, and explode to where they need to go. Canada is probably the same as the U.S. where the parents show up and they want to get that W on a Saturday, just at three o'clock for some strange reason. Uh, does the fact that you're not emphasizing the result, you're emphasizing the performance, do you ever, do you ever find that that, messaging gets difficult or challenging to be uh that it, hey we lost but we're still competitive or we won and it wasn't competitive enough yeah absolutely that if you educate parents then they understand it right and, and that's the the basics so i always talk about if we develop our players individually they will eventually win it's, it's natural right you might not win 100 percent of the time you might not be the best team but you generally will become competitive in, in every game, right? You're not going to get blown out of the water, you know, as you grow because your technique has improved so much that, that it's obvious, right? Because other kids aren't working on it. So when we're trying to pass the ball, we can pass the ball. When we want to take a player on, they've made enough mistakes over the years that they understand if I'm a left back, if I start to dribble into the middle of the field towards my goalkeeper, I've done that too many times. I'm going to fake to go inside. I'm going to go outside. Right. So it's that simple. They've actually figured it out themselves because I've allowed him to do that. 
right? Because we allow them to do that. So um, I think uh, parents get it. You know, they see, you know, their kid comes in, the kid can't uh, receive a ball, they can't pass the ball. All of a sudden, the kid's got some idea on the ball and they're getting comfortable. They see him dribble past the player, you know, and, and it's just natural. Like parents aren't, you know, they're not blind. They see it. So I think it's it's a matter of constantly educating. You know, when you when you lose, you talk about what were the positives that came out of it, right? You you show them, look, your child did this. And sometimes what I do is I actually have parents keep track of things. So I want you to keep track of whatever it is. So if it's at a young age, um, our fullback, if we're playing 7v7, can the fullback play the ball into the winger? Can the fullback play it into their center back? Can they, or, or they're sorry, the goalkeeper, can the fullback play it into center mid, right? And then as we go through the year, can they now find the striker? Because that's a bit longer pass, right? So we've gone from that 10-yard pass to now 15 to 20-yard pass, right? Which they're going to fail at, obviously, right? But then you start to, they, when they see it now, okay, gradual progression in the passing. When the player gets the ball, can you play out? Can you outplay one-on-one, right? So I think parents see it. They just, they naturally they see the evolution of the player. You posted as well on that there, linking emotion to learning. I found this, I found this really interesting uh, because again, I think it's really overlooked that maybe it goes with the engagement piece. We like to say that it's, it's an emotional game and there's the mental and the psych and all that there, but we don't really work on it at, at a young level. How are you or where do you find that you, you want to layer that in and how do you manage it and go yeah, about that? I mean, it's very simple. We talk about passion. How is passion created? It's because you love something. And why mm. do you love it? Because you enjoy being there. It's fun, right? And what's fun about it? Competing, learning, being successful, right? So for me, when I'm teaching something, when a kid does something well, I make sure I tell them. I praise them. I show others, hey, look at this kid. Look how he did it. And if the child's not very good at it, I 100% praise them when they get something. You know, even if they get two-thirds of it, I'm like, hey, you're coming along. It's really good. I see I see the way you twisted there. You're almost there, right? So you just got to keep on encouraging them to get to that level. So all of a sudden, the emotions are positive, right? Versus, man, you suck at that. You know, go home and practice. You know, you got to do that for the next week. Uh, I want you to do it 15 minutes every single day. I want you to do 100 turns on your own. Go in your backyard by yourself. Like, what a difference, right? Like, you know, the kid doesn't get it, but if I can go over there and tell them, here, work on this and that, and then they get all excited. They got a little one-on-one with me or with a coach, and then they get that next part. Hey, great, you you got that. Let's go to level two, right? So now you're tying in emotion to positive versus negative you're gamifying it right you're moving from level one to two to three so now they feel like i've gone up a level so i've actually improved right if you just give them okay here's the move we're going to work on and this is the end result and if you don't get it you suck right then yeah most of the kids are going to go home thinking oh, i didn't get it i wasn't very good but if we can go through levels okay we got to level three of level four Right, you're almost there. Now I want you to go home and work on it. You're really good. We're so close. Who's gonna be the first one to get it? Go home, do it, send me a video. All of a sudden there's excitement. Right. So I think the emotional level is very important because if the emotional state is positive, the learning is 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 happening. If the emotional state is negative, there's still learning happening, but what happens is it has a wear and tear over time. And over time, the kid's just like, ah, you know what? It sucks. I got other things to do. I'm 13, 14. I want to go and play a different thing now. I want to go hang out with my friends. 
and that's more emotionally uh, it's more it's it's more exciting or they feel better you know around people that make them feel better Brilliant. last couple for you here um, I know there's going to be a lot of people that are that are really resonating with your message if they haven't already and say right oh, this is you know you're talking about forward thinking you're talking about uh, gamification you're talking about changing and being unorthodox in some of the, the methods and the exercises but yeah like that's that's what we should be doing what what but they might be stuck in either a club that's a little bit uh, not robotic but traditional in in their curriculum layout or, or they might be just stuck in their own like well i've always done it this way What's your advice for someone who, who wants to move more to your end of the continuum? What's the starting point? It's pretty simple. If, if you think about why does a kid play, it's because they want to have fun, right? It's all about the player. It's not about the team. It's about the player, right? So the player is the curriculum, right? So what does the player need to do to become better? So if you look at it from the perspective – it's all about this individual child. He's coming to me or she's coming to me for 75 minutes or whatever it is. I need to make that child better by the time they leave. That simple. So how can I make them better? Physically, technically, give them some insight into the game, right? Some basic principles. When we play three on three, stretch that field. When, when you don't have the ball, can we go defend them like a dog, right? Like can they get their heart working? All of a sudden you're encouraging them. You're getting them better. So all the things that you want them to do, you know, even you talked about pressing, like we should be talking about pressing at the youngest age, because if we don't talk about when you lose the ball, go get it right away. It's your ball. You know, it's your chocolate. It's your gold. Don't let anyone have that chocolate. Would you share that chocolate? If someone stole it from me, what would you do? You'd run after them, right? That's your chocolate. Go get it. Right. And so if you don't have the ball, go get it. If you have the ball, run with it as fast as you can so no one else gets it. Simplest concept. And you you laugh, but that was actually the two things I taught my son when he was a young kid. I said, when you don't have the ball, run like Puyol to go win that ball because Puyol was playing at that time. I said, go like Puyol and like a thunder, go get that ball. When you get the ball, run like Messi because he runs like the wind and no one could ever get the ball from him. So he just run with the ball. Right. So it's all about the individual. So if you can go back to that individual and think of your session as this kid's coming to me, my job is to make that child better by the time he leaves. If you think like that, then, you know, you're going to be making them better. And, and that's just the way I am. I always have that anxiety when I go to training. I always know that someone is coming to me. They've actually come to me to think, this person can make me better. So then that's a lot of pressure on me. I better do my job because if I'm sitting there on my phone, or if I'm sitting there talking to parents, then I'm not doing my job. I better be involved in that session right now. Then the last one, which from a personal perspective, I'm really fascinated by is you, you can feel the passion. And obviously like with all the stuff you're doing, it's uh, you, you seem to be moving on a hundred miles an hour. So where do you, <laughs> Where do you personally draw your your sources of inspiration? Where do you bounce ideas off? Where do you get your your ideas? Okay, so I bounce my ideas off of a lot of people. So the one thing that my my father taught me when I was a young kid was the question why is the most important thing. So when I was a little kid and I didn't know something, he literally would make me pick up the phone and call my cousin 
and asked why or how or what is the answer, all right? And so that got ingrained into me from the very youngest age. So when I would go on coaching courses, I would sit in the front and I would just ask and ask. I don't care what anyone thinks about my questions. I just ask questions. So it'll be the stupidest question. But I know everyone else is asking and thinking that anyways, but I need to know information. And for me, when I get information, I just keep gathering information. Then I'm like, okay, I like it this way. I'm going to manipulate that to be my idea this way. So what I do is, uh, since we started the academy here, I've been bringing in coaches from abroad. So I've got coaches from Manchester United, Espanol, from Denmark, from Liverpool, you name it, AS Roma. The biggest clubs in the world, I've had coaches that are now coaching in at the highest level, national teams. I mean, damn it, Chichi, it doesn't get much bigger, right? Like, I bring in anyone and everyone, and they stay in my home, and we give them Indian food. And I sit there and I talk to them all day long till they fall asleep. My job is to watch them coach, to learn from them, to ask everything that they do, why they did it, how they did it, what do they thought about it, how can we improve it, what do you think we should do at this academy to make it better, how can we be like you? And so that's me, like my, my little academy, my whole perspective is why can I not be the gold mine of this world? That's my that's my way of looking at life. Why is Barcelona the way they are? And why did Iceland get to the World Cup when they only have 250,000 people? We have a million people in Ottawa. So why can't I produce players at a better level than Iceland? And why can't we have players playing in Barcelona? So because I think like that, I just don't know any better. That's That's just what I'm trying to do. So for our club, our ultimate purpose, which is not written anywhere, is to produce two Champions League players. UEFA Champions League players. That's that that'll be the success of our club. So you know we'll get players to university. We'll get them to this and that. But the Champions League is where it's at. And so I'm always thinking, how do we get them there? Fantastic, Sanji. This interview has just flown by. My only thing is, well, I, I don't think we've covered half the stuff. So we might have to get you on again in the near future. I've loved it. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem, man. It was great being here. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.